Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego's MTS settles a case tragically similar to the George Floyd killing. One of the officers also put his knee to his neck and that lasted for roughly six minutes. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego researchers say acknowledging aerosol COVID transmission is key. But there is still quite a bit of resistance to wanting to refocus on this because it changes the way we approach the prevention efforts, both in hospitals and and, uh, in the world. Scientists describe an emerging mega drought in California and a conversation with the conductor of a pop-up drive-in opera at the sports arena. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. As the nation waits for a verdict in the George Floyd killing, a case with a disturbingly similar set of facts has just been resolved in San Diego. In October 2019, 24-year-old Angel Zapata Hernandez died after being restrained with knees in his back and on his neck by transit law enforcement. Yesterday, a $5.5 million settlement was announced in the case, as well as reforms in the policing policies of San Diego's metropolitan transit system. Joining me is David Hernandez, who covers law enforcement for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you remind us about the circumstances surrounding the death of Angel Hernandez? Where did it happen? Yeah, so it happened, uh, as you mentioned, in October 2019, and it all unfolded um, along the railroad tracks just north of the Santa Fe Depot in San Diego. And what we know is that uh, MTS officers saw him uh, wandering back and forth along the tracks. And eventually one of the officers approached him and started talking to him. And uh, that's when the encounter unfolded. He ultimately ran off for a bit until they caught up to him. And a uh, struggle ensued. 
And eventually that struggle took them to the ground. And like you mentioned, officers ended up putting uh, their knees to his back. And one of the officers also put his knee to his neck. And that lasted for roughly six minutes, according to a video which was just released yesterday. Hernandez is described as mentally ill. What problems was he suffering from? So according to his family, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 2017. And um, he also had a history of uh, drug abuse, although he was in recovery, had gone to treatment and was going to some Narcotics Anonymous meetings. But uh, he, he was still, you know, dealing with the schizophrenia and was taking medication for that. Um, it, it's worth noting that there were no illegal drugs in his system when when he died, according to toxicology reports. So he was restrained by an MTS police officer and a security officer who had him on the ground. And as you mentioned, uh, with a knee on his neck for about six minutes, according to the video, what happened when San Diego police arrived at the scene? Yeah, so once uh, officers got there, they essentially, interestingly enough, they it all unfolded pretty quickly once they arrived, but they initially told the officers to keep him on the ground and then asked if he, if he meaning Hernandez, had calmed down. And uh, that's when one of the MTS officers starts talking to Angel, or rather tries to talk to him. He asks, Angel, are you alive, dude? And they quickly notice that something is wrong. And the one of the San Diego police officers um, asks if he has a pulse and reaches for Hernandez's neck to check for a pulse. Um, they flip him over and they realize that there's foam around his mouth um, and they call for medics. And eventually he's taken to a hospital where he is pronounced dead. So this whole scenario is tragically like what we've been hearing happen to George Floyd in Minneapolis. Were the officers involved in Hernandez's death criminally charged? They were not. So the way the process works, or worked rather in this case, is that San Diego police investigated the death and presented the case to the district attorney's office. Um, and the office ultimately decided not to seek charges against the officers. Um, in a statement to uh, our paper yesterday, they essentially said that they felt they couldn't prove any criminal charges beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, so, so it's really interesting because like you mentioned, there are some similarities with this case and the George Floyd case. Um, and so it's a little unclear, you know, what that process or rather that decision-making process from the district attorney's office entailed. Um, and that's something we may try to look into a little bit more, but no criminal charges were brought forward in this case. Are the two officers still with MTS? Both officers have, have since resigned. So this $5.5 million settlement with the Hernandez family was announced by County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. What are some of the things he said about Angel's death and the response from MTS? Yeah, so he called Angel's death a seminal moment for the agency, um, one that caused them to take a deep look at their policies and practices, he said. He essentially said that it was a tragedy that should have been avoided. And he apologized to the family and said that MTS was committed to making changes. And he outlined several of the changes that they have made. And he also mentioned others that the agency is committed to still working on, uh, including, for example, banning uh, officers from putting people in a prone position. Talk to me a bit about the changes MTS has made in an effort to stop this from happening again. Right. So again, going off of this death, which uh, Supervisor Fletcher said should have been avoided, they kind of took a look at all of their policies and practices and 
it's worth noting that they had started doing that in 2017, but it really picked up momentum after this death. And especially in light of George Floyd's death, they banned carotid restraints. They also banned some chokeholds and prohibited officers from putting a knee on a person's head, throat, or neck. Okay, then I've been speaking with David Hernandez. He covers law enforcement for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And David, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. report in the medical journal The Lancet says COVID-19 is spread primarily by small aerosol particles. Two San Diego researchers helped make the case that the coronavirus has spread so efficiently because it is passed along by small aerosols that are released by breathing. The researchers liken the aerosols to secondhand smoke. One of the report co-authors is Dr. Robert Schooley, an infectious disease specialist and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego Health. He joins me now with more. Welcome, Dr. Schooley. Thank you. Good afternoon. So listen, one of the points you make in your paper is the difference between protecting yourself against a virus that spreads primarily through respiratory droplets and one that primarily spreads through aerosols. Will you explain those differences for me? We've had for a long time in infectious diseases this construct that uh, there are two different ways viruses and other pathogens are spread. One is by smaller aerosols that can travel for long distances, and the other is by large droplets, kind of things you see in the air when you sneeze. These are big uh, particles that fall to the ground in about six feet. One of the misconceptions has been that because people who are closer to other people are more likely to get infected, this must mean that the virus is being transmitted in big droplets because the big droplets don't spread any further than that. Well, the small aerosols also are more concentrated the closer you are to the source. They disperse, and as you get farther away, your likelihood of getting infected goes down. But that doesn't mean that you're not getting infected by these small particles when you're close up. Now, why would this be important? Well, if it were only droplets, and if droplets were the thing that were actually carrying this virus, we wouldn't worry about being in closed rooms with people. Uh, We wouldn't worry about having uh, somebody sitting across the table six feet away eating a sandwich because if these were droplets, they'd fall to the ground, they wouldn't reach. But in fact, these are uh, the viruses and smaller particles that waft up in the air and can spread uh, further than that. And that's why we recommend people wearing masks uh, whenever they're indoors and uh, using distance between themselves because that allows both particles and aerosols to disperse uh, as one more layer to protect them from SARS-CoV-2. And talk about the evidence uh, that you and your colleagues have gathered that supports the primary spread of COVID-19 through aerosols rather, rather than droplets. Well, there's some, there some direct physical measurements looking at what particles the virus is most likely to be associated with as the smaller aerosols. There are several instances of, um, in which the virus is spread for example, in choirs that can't be explained by direct droplets, uh, can only be explained by aerosol transmission. There are people who've gone into a room where someone has been uh, and is no longer there uh, who have picked up the virus. That can't be explained uh, by, by droplet transmission. So you know, our argument isn't that it's never spread by droplets, but that you also have to consider aerosols when you are planning your prevention program. 
Now, you and your colleagues have been sounding the alarm about the way COVID-19 is spread through aerosols for months. So why publish this letter in The Lancet now? Well, there is still quite a bit of resistance to wanting to refocus on this because it changes the way we approach the prevention efforts, both in hospitals and and, uh, in the world. Uh, We've seen uh, outbreaks in places like the White House and other places where people say they were socially distanced and following the guidelines, when in fact they weren't wearing masks. And it's clear that those kinds of events are ones we want to avoid. We still have the WHO that uh, has uh, been very slow to embrace the idea of uh, aerosol transmission. One of the reasons they initially were is that they were concerned about alarming people. And uh, they were also concerned that the, the, the logical conclusion of aerosol spread is people should be should wear masks when they're around other people, there was a global mask shortage. And so the, to say that this was transmitted by aerosols, people should wear masks, they were concerned would lead to a shortage of masks in hospital settings. From the public policy perspective, I think we're always better off saying, here's what we think the facts are. From the public, public policy pers- perspective right now, we don't have a mask, enough masks to have everyone in the world wear one, and they should be used preferentially in places at highest risk. But we shouldn't have the facts that are obvious tweaked to then make policy. Hmm. So we know that this virus is spread via aerosols. Is the N95 or cloth mask as effective as a P100 mask? There are gradations of effectiveness, and uh, probably the least effective is a gainer. Uh, Then you start getting into uh, bandanas, and then you start moving up into masks that are made of multi-layers of cotton and that are tightly woven, and then to N95s and N100s. Now, the virus is transmitted not to everybody every time you're in with someone. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of dose. And so each time you increase one of the things that prevents transmission, it can be a better mask, more distance, not being indoors, better ventilation, a vaccine. Each one of those puts you at a better, uh, in a better position to avoid getting infected. So in situations in which uh, ventilation is difficult, a better mask going to be more important than uh, when you're in places where viral concentrations are likely to be lower. So it's just one of the many things that we try to optimize when we're trying to prevent spread of the virus while we hope that more and more people become immune from vaccination. Mm. And you and and other scientists have been calling on the CDC and the World Health Organization for months now to update their guidance on how people should protect themselves from COVID-19 infection. What harm is being caused by not changing their recommendations for protections against COVID-19? Well, the major harm is is it puts people in positions that um, they may get infected. That has several implications. First of all, True, many of the people who are getting infected now are younger people who are less likely to get sick, but some of them do get sick. Uh, secondly, there are older people who uh, may have underlying immunodeficiencies that may get vaccinated trying to protect themselves, but the vaccine may not induce immunity because they're on an immunosuppressive drug. So people who are uh, not taking into account their own aerosols put those people at risk uh, who are doing the best they can not to get infected and get sick. And thirdly, uh, by not paying attention to aerosol transmission, allowing the virus to, uh, to uh, spread, we're allowing the virus to develop more and more um, difficult variants that are going to be harder and harder to control by vaccines and ultimately making it harder to control the epidemic. 
So focusing on aerosol transmission and ways to prevent that while we're working on getting vaccine immunity is a very important short and long-term goal. I've been speaking to Dr. Robert Schooley, an infectious disease specialist and chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego Health. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Have a good day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This week on Midday Edition, we're bringing you stories related to Earth Day, which is commemorated on Thursday, April 22nd. Today, we're talking about drought and the many ways the current extended drought period has impacted communities across the state. For many Californians, concerns over drought conditions haven't been a seasonal issue. They've been a way of life with consecutive years of record high temperatures and scarce rainfall. Some climate researchers are hinting at the possibility California has actually been in a protracted mega drought, which means the impact of climate change could be much more severe across the state. Here to talk about that is Daniel Kayan, a researcher of climate atmospheric science and physical oceanography at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography at UC San Diego. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So as California enters another drought season, the question now is whether or not the last one ever ended in the first place. Is it safe to say that the state is in a period of mega drought? It certainly is the case that since 2000, we've been in and out of dryness And this last event really took hold in 2020 and has persisted through the current period. But I guess arguably we've had five waves of dryness beginning in 2020, but we have had those dry spells punctuated with some wet years, 05, 06, 2011, and 2017 was quite wet. So one thing that I think we have to remember about California is that our setting, a Mediterranean area, means that we're on the edge of a winter storm track. So we have a limited time window when we can receive precipitation roughly between November and March. And in some cases, the storm track is farther north and we are dry. And the fact that we receive a very strong proportion of our precipitation from just a handful of storms each winter. And if those storms are absent, such as this last year, we are uh, often in the dry category. You know, the previous year saw a devastating fire season fueled by a historically dry drought season. Have we seen the worst of it yet, or can we expect conditions to continue to worsen? There's a certain amount of crystal ball in that answer, but climate models certainly indicate that over decades, conditions will become more extreme. Warmer temperatures and extended summer dry season All of that spells a larger concern with wildfire in the uh, climate future. 
Now, sustained drought conditions have also severely impacted water availability across the state's agricultural sector, even prompting concerns over water rationing. How could this long-term drought period affect how we all manage water? Conservation comes into play, and it's not only the agricultural sector which is affected, but also urban and industrial components of water demand are affected. Agriculture actually traditionally in California has has mitigated dryness by the use of groundwater. And we know that in the recent historical past, dry events have been have been marked by the increase use of groundwater levels, that to some extent has become a little bit curtailed with stronger groundwater management. But when we look at the historical record, the really large swings in water use and water demand have really appeared in the urban sector. So um, there's been a lot of conservation that's been instituted during these dry spells. And I think that we can imagine that we'll see urban as well as agricultural sectors sort of belt tightening as far as their water use. You know, ultimately, what we're talking about here are the growing ways climate change affects our communities and our environment. So what can be done to prepare our state for this new normal of extreme weather? There's a number of uh, aspects of that question. Water conservation and probably the partitioning of water between the various sectors in California. Again, a commitment that is is made that water is going to be needed for years on end in a rather steady fashion. Those are the kinds of societal decisions that I think we're going to have to grapple with in the future as climate becomes impacted more by, by climate change, extremes become more intense, and so on. Another aspect that comes into play is our ability to forecast climate and actually weather at shorter time scales, the weather forecasting problem is really important because advance notice of a big storm, for example, allows water managers to move water around, make more reservoir space available in certain places, and insulate the public from floods, which is the other side of the coin in the volatile uh, water picture in California. I've been speaking with Daniel Kayan, a climate scientist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, It was a pleasure, Jade, and thanks for covering this story. People often look to their faith leaders for guidance on big decisions, who to marry, how many kids to have, whether to change jobs. These days, parishioners are asking another big question, should I get a COVID-19 vaccine? KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser tells us the answer local faith leaders give could impact when we reach herd immunity and the severity of future outbreaks the future of of humanity and freedom lies in the hands of the believing Christians. In February, a large crowd gathered at the Awakened Church in San Marcos to hear from Dr. Simone Gold, a well-known anti-vaccine doctor. 
she spoke with the church's founders and made several claims regarding the safety of the vaccines that have been debunked by health authorities and mainstream scientists. Good morning, Awakened Church! Happy Valentine's Day today! Awaken has five locations in San Diego. It is the same church that's been the source of significant outbreaks and that county officials have called out for a flagrant disregard of COVID-19 health orders. Awaken's anti-vaccine stance could have a broader impact on our region, says UC San Diego epidemiologist Rebecca Fielding Miller. When you have one set of people who specifically are not interested in getting vaccinated or who decline to get vaccinated, then you are more likely to see outbreaks in that group of people. The reason that that is important beyond that community is because we do, um, you know, spend time in space together. Folks who are part of a community that's not interested in vaccinating are also folks who, you know, go grocery shopping and go out to eat and whose kids go to school. But Fielding Miller says faith-based communities can also be key drivers in the push to reach herd immunity. People do mix randomly-ish, but not really, right? And if everybody who you work with or everybody who you go to church with, everybody who you socialize with has gotten vaccinated or is talking about getting vaccinated, then it is the social norm. It is, um, oh, this is just, this is what we do. We're doing everything we can to encourage people to uh, obtain the vaccination as soon as it's, it's available to them and to get it done so we can all resume, you know, a much more normal life. Kevin Eckery is a spokesperson for the Catholic Diocese of San Diego. The Catholic Church and many other local faith-based organizations are on the other end of the spectrum from Awaken. They are actively encouraging followers to get vaccinated. We have no one who got infected here. Imam Taha Hassan of the Islamic Center of San Diego says his mosque held a virtual session on Zoom last month with two doctors from UC San Diego to answer members' questions and address concerns. They are also planning a vaccination clinic at the mosque in a few weeks. And we would like to keep doing the right thing. And the right thing now is to promote the vaccination. And Rabbi Scott Meltzer of Or Shalom Synagogue in Bankers Hill says he recently held a 90-minute lecture on why Jewish people are religiously obligated to take the COVID-19 vaccines. A Jewish religious obligation to uh, seek and protect health for our children, for ourselves, and for those around us. To make sure that, that things are as safe as can be. Um, and health is an important measure for that. You know, uh, life, is, life in this world is considered a gift and one that should be protected and, uh, and therefore, you know, COVID vaccine is an important part of that for us. Some local churches are taking vaccine advocacy a step further by actually helping put shots into parishioners' arms. Last month, the Bayview Baptist Church in Encanto held a clinic where 500 people got vaccines. Pastor Keith Brown says the event helped some who were skeptical of the vaccines make the decision including him. And I was skeptic as well uh, when they first had him come out saying that it was came out fast. Uh, I was skeptical. But what made uh, me change my mind is once I heard the statistics. 
Nationwide survey data show that white evangelical Protestants are less likely to get vaccinated than other racial and religious groups. While other evangelical megachurches in San Diego don't appear to be taking the same anti-vaccine stance as Awaken, they are not advocating for vaccines either. Rock Church's assistant pastor, Mickey Stonier, says his church won't be making any recommendations. We're not medical doctors. Uh, we're doctors for the heart. We encourage people to adhere to all the safety, health, eat, exercise, uh, keep yourself safe. When asked why Rock Church isn't promoting the vaccines the way other churches and religious organizations are, Stonier says they don't stand in judgment of what other churches are doing. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And Claire, welcome. Thank you so much, Maureen. Tell us more about Awaken Church. How many followers do they have? Well, I'm not sure exactly how many followers they have, but I do know they have five locations in San Diego. Um, and I looked them up. They have more than 10,000 likes on Facebook. Are awakened church leaders specifically telling their churchgoers not to get vaccinated? Well, it, it seems to be that way. I found on their website, I wasn't there, but their San Marcos location had a, a service in, in person with a big crowd there. And they hosted this doctor, Dr. Simone Gold, who is a pretty prominent anti vaccine doctor and was just a, you know, slew of misinformation about the vaccines. I mean, she kept saying, it's up to you whether you want to take the experimental COVID vaccine. But her overall message was that it hadn't been tested, that it had contributed to a lot of deaths, just a, a pretty anti-vaccine message. And do we know if anti-vax messages are happening in many more churches in the county? Well, that's certainly what I was trying to find out, and I reached out to a lot of different churches locally. It seems like the other big evangelical uh, megachurches in the county are not saying to not take the vaccine. They're not anti-vax, but they're also not saying you should take the vaccine. They're pretty adamantly uh, non-committal on, <laughs> on that question. And so those churches aren't giving any guidance to their congregation about the vaccines. How do they explain this kind of silence on one of the biggest topics of our time? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think that a lot of people turn to their churches for uh, answers to, to questions about what they should do. And this is a big question right now. The, the churches that I spoke with all said, you know, it's a personal decision, it's a medical decision, and we just don't want to give an opinion on that. Um, another church locally, the uh, the Grove, said people are confused about what to do um, and are somewhere in the middle, but they said it's a personal medical decision that we are not qualified to advise on. Then on the other side of the coin, one church in the South Bay that you reported on actually held a vaccine clinic. Why did they make that decision? Right. That, that's the uh, Bayview Baptist Church in, um, in Canto, I believe. And they said that they are there to serve their members and serve the community. They've been doing uh, food drives for, for people who live around the church. And so they had this vaccine clinic as kind of another way to serve their area and serve their members. 
And does that reflect a trend that's been seen nationally? Yeah, the uh, the Pew Research Center has done a nationwide survey, and they did find specifically that white evangelical Protestants are least likely to get the vaccine. So 45% of white evangelicals said they will not get a vaccine versus, you know, maybe 33% of black Protestants and then uh, 22% of Hispanic Catholics. So those other uh, racial and and religious groups were were much smaller than the uh, white evangelicals. Well, the Catholic Church originally had concerns about the use of fetal cells in the development of the COVID vaccines, but it seems to have put those issues aside and is now urging parishioners to get vaccinated. Yes, that's right. Um, from from the Pope on down um, and the, the bishop of the Catholic uh, diocese here in San Diego wrote a letter to be read at all of the local parishes saying, please go get your vaccine. Um, it's, you know, part of our duty at, as Catholics. Um, and also, you know, I spoke with uh, Jewish rabbis and uh, Muslim imams, and they also said the same thing, that they are advising their followers that it's um, not only a good idea for them personally, but kind of a religious obligation to protect the health of others to go get their vaccines. Now, people don't always do what faith leaders tell them to do. So (laughs) what difference do health experts say it makes when churches come out for or against vaccines? That's that's very true. And that's a good point. I think one thing that um, at least uh, an epidemiologist from UC San Diego said is that um, studies are finding it's not just, you know, what your faith leader tells you to do, but kind of that peer pressure. If you know someone who's gotten a vaccine, you're more likely to get a vaccine because you see that that person was okay or, you know, whatever it is, or it's just kind of becomes more of a collective, oh, okay, everyone from my church is doing this. I guess that's just what we're doing. So I will do it too. So I think, you know, if the faith leaders have an impact on some people in the congregation that can kind of carry through um, the, the rest of the congregation for people who might not listen to the faith leader, but still do what those around them are, are doing. Okay, I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, thank you. Thank you so much. As thousands of migrant families cross into the United States, many are being flown to San Diego, then removed to Mexico without any of their belongings. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler found this type of treatment is likely contributing to the rise of unaccompanied children crossing the border. There's a rack of shoes drying in the sun outside of Embajadores de Jesus shelter in Tijuana. The tongues of the shoes are just hanging out because Customs and Border Protection took the laces from them, even from the tiniest of shoes, including those belonging to Claudia Vasquez del Cid and her six-year-old daughter, Kami. They fled rampant crime, domestic abuse, and joblessness in a hurricane-wrecked Honduras. They crossed the Rio Grande in Texas earlier this month. She tells me Customs and Border Protection threw away her clothes, their shoelaces, their money. Now she has nothing to feed her daughter. They're throwing us away, she says. 
they send us to be thrown out. Vasquez del Cid is one of over 3,000 asylum seekers flown from the Texas border to the San Diego-Tijuana border. That's because Mexican states near the Texas border are not accepting returns of Central American migrant families with young children. But Baja California does. 78% of families encountered by San Diego Border Patrol between November and March were expelled to Baja. Each day, around 100 people are flown to San Diego from Texas. Some families are allowed to remain in the United States. Others are driven to the border, handed over to Mexican authorities, and driven to the Embajadores de Jesus shelter, where they're greeted by Pastor Gustavo Banda Aceves, who has operated the shelter for five years. Each day over the past month, 100 migrants have arrived at the shelter. The children are mostly between the ages of two and eight. Muy mal. Algunos de ellos se desmayan en la silla, sobre todo los niños. They arrive in very bad shape, Pastor Gustavo tells me. Some of them faint in their seats on the way to the shelter. All of them come with coughs, with vomiting, with stomach illnesses. After crossing the border, the families are held in dangerously crowded and freezing holding cells, called hileras, where COVID-19 and other illnesses spread quickly. Before January 2019, families were allowed into the U.S. to pursue their asylum claims. Since then, however, a combination of restrictive policies under the Biden and Trump administrations have kept them mostly out, even as conditions worsen in Central America. With the Biden administration no longer removing unaccompanied children, many parents at the border are deciding to send their children ahead, alone, in the hands of smugglers. Pastor Gustavo said this decision has contributed to the record-breaking rise in the amount of unaccompanied children crossing the border. A veces nosotros no lo entendemos y es una opción que toman muy complicada porque a lo mejor no vuelven a ver a su hijo tampoco. Sí, mira, he said it's difficult to understand, but to make sure their kids don't die from gang violence, they have to decide to send them ahead, alone, even if it might mean they never see their children again. Either way, they won't see them again, but in America, they'll be safe. One morning last week, some families lined up for a bus to take them back to Central America. Others headed back to Reynosa to cross the border again in Texas in the hopes they'll be led into the country. Gloria Vasquez del Cid, holding the hand of her young daughter, doesn't know what she'll do. She just says she can't go back to Honduras. In Tijuana, Max Ruvlin Adler, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Maracal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, Maracal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This weekend, San Diego Opera will hold its One Amazing Night concert and Barber of Seville at a pop-up drive-in at Pachanga Sports Arena parking lot. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Bruce Stasna about what his role of conductor is and the challenges he faces working outdoors. Bruce, you are going to be conducting two events for San Diego Opera. And first of all, let me ask you to explain what that role is in case people don't fully understand it. 
Well, the conductor component is uh, the person who is responsible for the direction of the music, guides the arc of the production for the singers and in the production of Barbara Seville in particular, and then also uh, is the conductor for the orchestra. So I'm sort of marshalling all of the musical forces on stage and in the pit, or in this case, a separate orchestra platform at Pachanga. Yeah, so you mentioned an orchestra pit, and this is what you would normally have inside a theater. So what are the challenges of doing events outdoors? They're immense challenges. When we first started to think about doing a drive-in production, a lot of our protocols were dictated by the spaces available to us. And in particular, the orchestra area uh, became denoted by a platform that was going to be installed that was 42 feet wide by 60 feet long. So once you have that defined area, then because of the pandemic, we had to look at the protocols in place and so we are looking at spacing the, the instrumentalists according to whether they are masked players, violinists, percussion players, keyboard players, or unmasked brass players and woodwind players. So the masked players who they, they perform with their masks on, they have to have six feet of separation between each of the instruments. The woodwind and brass players, that's 12 feet. So then you have to take out your measuring tape and put together quite a highly engineered series of spatial references to make sure that everybody's got their 12 feet or everybody's got their six feet. And then from there, well, how many, how many players can you actually fit on a 42 by 60 foot orchestra platform? It's an enormous challenge. And the answer is 24. (laughs) And these two events are different in the sense one is an opera and the other is an evening of song. What is the difference for you, if there is any, in terms of conducting? It's huge. So the opera, typically in in a rehearsal period for the opera, you have anywhere between two weeks and three weeks, depending on the size of the production, to do a musical rehearsal, to work with the stage director, and really create the arc of the evening to get the staging and the timing right, in particular with comedy, because comedy is always much more more challenging in terms of really finessing the timing of all of the elements. Then you have a rehearsal period with the orchestra, and then you have the first meeting with the singers and the orchestra called the Zitzpolba before you go through at least two different uh, orchestra dress rehearsals. So the amount of time that you're actually living with the production and working with the various artists is hardly luxurious, but it is enough time to really get it all into place. With the concert, because it is a one-night event, the vast majority of the planning and rehearsals is done remotely. Um, The bottom line is we get one orchestra rehearsal by itself, then we have the afternoon on Saturday before the concert to bring everybody onto stage and our script writer slash stage director slash co-creator has got very specific things to achieve while I'm conducting the orchestra and that they sing along uh, to do that dress rehearsal. Uh, And then we go that night. So it is uh, all systems go all the time with the concert. Now with a concert, Is there a narrative or a story going on even within just a concert setting? In this particular concert, it has been conceived with a special guest narrator, James Newcomb, who is one of our special guest artists. And he's actually has a bespoke script 
uh, written by the San Diego Opera resident stage director, Alan Hicks. And he's created a script to really explore this idea of notorious pandemics from the Black Plague up to the AIDS crisis. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the script and, you know, forgive me for for, for sounding uh, uh, like stealing from somebody, but a Ken Burns type of documentary describing the whys and wherefores as to how this music evolved in reaction to the various notorious pandemics of our times. And in contrast, you have the Barber of Seville. And it's talk a little bit about the music in this and the possibility that for a lot of us of a certain age, our introduction to opera might have been Bugs Bunny in this. How do? Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Let me shave your crop. Dinkily, dinkily. Hey, you. Don't look so perplexed. Why must you be next? Can't you see you're next? Yes, you're next. Yeah, so next. The iconic reference uh, to the Il Barbieri di Seville, of course, is Bugs Bunny. And Rossini's great comedy, and it truly is from the Bel Canto period, it sort of defines what comic Italian opera is in the early to middle 19th century. And I mean, first of all, everybody knows the tunes from the get-go. The overture, the symphonia is iconic. It's been heard and deployed in movies, soundtracks. And this is a, a, a comic opera full of great, beloved, tuneful hits. So everybody has a chance to show off as a vocalist. It, the, the, the virtuosity of Rossini's writing at this point in his career is uh, bar none, not only for the singers, but also for the instrumentalists. Everybody's got to be in top shape to, to, to really make this music sing. You talked a little bit about comic timing and opera. So how does that play out in terms of it's a live performance, so you're not sure exactly how things are, are going to work out. But how do you, as a conductor, have a role in that comic timing? Um, I think it really has a lot to do with keeping yourself in the moment constantly. So that, as you say, uh, it's, 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 it's a live performance, so there are always going to be mitigating factors, whether it's wind or in an outdoor venue, if a fire engine suddenly screams by, how is that going to uh, interface with the characters on stage? Are they going to make an allowance for that for a moment? Um, are they not? Are they going to press forward? So it's, it really has a, a lot to do with knowing the production well enough to forecast a sort of a realm of possibilities. It could go this way, it could go that way. Whichever way it does go, I have to be poised and ready to adapt instantaneously. And that's exciting, actually. That's that's the fun part of, of live music making, because you never know what's going to happen. And hopefully Friday night's performance is not going to be the same as Tuesday night's performance, and all for good reason. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about opera. Truly my pleasure to be here. One Amazing Night is this Friday, and The Barber of Seville begins its four performances on Saturday. Both take place at Pachanga Sports Arena parking lot.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.